Today we begin our summer series through the book of Judges. When I was a kid in Brazil, I attended a private school, and at the end of every month, the students would receive an invoice that they would take home to hand to their parents, and that's how tuition would, would get paid. Often, quite often, this invoice would mysteriously disappear as I made my way home. This was an element of great frustration for my parents, and rightly so. So one month, my mom, who you might remember, was a principal of a sister school to the school I attended, um, told me that I had to go back to school and I had to figure out how to get a second copy of this invoice. As I returned to the school, I first went to the main office and to my surprise, the front desk lady who was often very helpful, seemed to be quite unhelpful that day. I went around the school from office to office trying to figure out how to dig myself out of the hole I had dug. Finally, I was able to find a second copy of the invoice, and I went back to the first office, to the first lady I saw, and I wanted to let her know that I had accomplished the mission. As I came to her, she smiled at me and she said, your mom called before you came and she said, help him with nothing. Let him figure this out. My mom is starting to become a parallel to a sovereign God in my illustrations, isn't she? That's good parenting. That's good parenting right there. Mom who loved her son enough not to leave him in his own folly. And there's a great parallel here with the book of Judges. God loves his people too much to leave us in our sin. God's greatest concern for us is not our comfort, but our holiness. And holiness is both something that we're granted when we first believe, but something that we grow into as we persevere in our faith. Hebrews 12, verse 4, strive for peace with everyone and also strive for the holiness without, one, without which no one will see God. Today we start our summer series through this book of the Bible, the book of Judges. And in the book of Judges, we see a God who loves His people so much that He leads them through hardship in order to show them mercy. Mercy never comes without hardship. He saves His people through judgment as He redeems them from their own idolatry. This series will be a little different. We're going to look at longer passages of Scripture. Uh, we will not open our sermons with a reading from the text because of the length of the text. Instead, we'll scatter much of the text throughout the sermon. Clearly, with such a long text, I'm not going to say everything there is to be said about the text. That would be impossible 
Actually, that would be impossible even if I was preaching on one single verse at a time. My goal is not to preach on every single word we see, but to understand the point that the author is making in these longer passages and preach that point. So, is this an expository sermon? Is this going to be an expository series? And the answer is, Yes, this is an expository series. An expository sermon is a sermon in which the point of the passage is the point of the sermon. You can preach short passages and miss the point of the passage, and that's not an expository sermon. And you can preach long passages and understand and explain rightly the point of the passage, and that is an expository sermon. So an expository sermon is a sermon in which the point of the passage is the point of the text. The author of the Bible determines the point of the sermon. Be it one verse, be it a few verses, be it an entire chapter of the Bible, or be it an entire book of the Bible. There are certain benefits for sermons that are shorter Sure, we get to see the profundity. We get to see the depth of God's Word. But there are some benefits for sermons that are longer. We get to see a panoramic view of the Word of God. We get to be more familiarized with the entirety of the Bible. I am certain that most of us here would say that we've never sat through a sermon through the entire book of Isaiah. But do we need to know the message of Isaiah? We certainly do. I'm certain most of us are very unfamiliarized with Second Chronicles. Do we need that message in our lives? We absolutely do. So at times throughout the years, we're going to do some of these series that are faster, that cover more ground, and that don't go as deep into the details of the text, but still try to understand the overarching arguments in the text. Today, our sermon text is Joshua, not Joshua, Judges 1, 1 through 3, 6. So my recommendation to you is that throughout our sermon today, you pick up the pew Bible that is in front of you and keep it open so that you can keep up with the reading as I scatter it throughout the text. If you open up the Pew Bible to page 187, that would be verse 1, chapter 1 of Judges. Before we dive into our text, let's, let's try to get a picture, a, a broad picture of the book of Judges. So the book of Judges is the seventh book in the Bible. It follows the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, and the book of Joshua. The book of Judges and the book of Joshua are actually intrinsically connected, and we're going to see more of that as we move through the text. It is actually a sequel to the book of Joshua. While Joshua is about the conquest of the promised land, 
Judges is about the keeping of the promised land. So in order to understand Judges, we need to understand Joshua. When Moses leads the people out of Egypt into the wilderness, he wanders in the desert for 40 years. At the end of the wandering, Moses dies. So it's up to Joshua to take the people into the land that God had promised them. And Joshua does so successfully. Listen to the great fulfillment of God's promises given to the people of Israel at the end of the book of Joshua. Joshua 21, 43 through 45. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. The promise of the land given to Abraham in verse 12 is thus fulfilled. None of God's promises failed. But God's blessing on the people depended on their faithfulness. This blessing depended on their covenant-keeping ability. So Joshua warns the people with these words. Joshua 24, 20. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then He will turn and do to you harm and consume you after having done you good. And what we're going to see in the book of Judges is that Joshua's warning came to fruition. The people were unfaithful, but God, in His mercy, provided leaders to deliver the people out of the troubles that they themselves had created. The name of the book comes from, from these leaders, Judges. Don't think of judges in the modern sense of the word in a, in a courthouse, although some of them did courtroom-style judging. These were more like judges in the line of Moses and Joshua. They delivered the people by the power of the sword. One special feature in the book of Judges is how it is organized. We are told that the book of Judges encompasses 300 years of the history of Israel. And yet, if you add up all the years that we're told throughout the book of Judges, there's more than 300 years. Some of them overlapped. Some of them judged at the same time. These were regional leaders. So while the book of Joshua is arranged chronologically, it basically encompasses Joshua's entire adult ministry life. The book of jo uh, Judges is not arranged chronologically. It is arranged geographically. It begins with Othniel in Judah. 
we're going to see, we're going to meet him next week, we're actually hear about him this week. And Othniel even conquers uh, Jerusalem. But it ends with Samson in Dan. Othniel is our model judge. And Samson is the pinnacle of corruption. As far from Jerusalem as possible in the tribe of Dan. And this geographical organization is meant to also demonstrate the moral decadence of Israel and its judges. While the book of Judges begins with a model leader, Othniel, as the story develops, the judges become more and more ungodly until there is virtually no difference between the leaders of the Canaanite peoples and the leaders of Israel. The closing verse of the book of Judges explains this so well. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Sounds a lot like today, doesn't it? And thus, here we understand the purpose of this book. The book of Judges is an apology for the Davidic line of kings. Judges who were regional leaders could not lead all of Israel into godly lives. Israel needed a king one man who truly was after God's own heart. Israel needed a king like David. A society's greatest need is godly leadership because as the leader goes, so go the people. Thus, here comes the title and the subtitle of our series, Judges, Saints, and Sinners. Searching for a king. And as Israel, in the book of Judges, looked for a king like David, and not like Saul, we look today for a king like Christ. So as we dive into our text today, we're going to use three words to guide us. The words are conquest, compromise, and consequence. So let's consider the word Conquest. Notice how the book begins. Verse 1, chapter 1. After the death of Joshua. Interestingly enough, this is exactly how the book of Joshua starts. After the death of Moses. Leadership transitions are often times of great instability. When a leader dies, often he creates a leadership vacuum. It's a prime time for corruption to enter a nation. I was listening to a report on missions in Haiti just this week and how the assassination of their sitting president, Jovenel Moi, in 2021, brought a season of increased instability in the already struggling nation. So, the book of Judges starts with a dark note. Joshua 
The godly leader is dead. But it's also, this is also a good reminder for us. Every godly leader that could possibly be all over us will always die. So the people of God can never depend on the leadership of men. The book of Judges points us to our great need for God. Jeremiah 17, 5, Cursed is the man who trusts in men and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. I'm sure we all know godly men. I'm sure we all depend on godly men. But even the godliest of men fall short, fail, fret, and ultimately die. But notice how Israel responds well to the death of its leader. Verse 1 goes on to say, The people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up first. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. The tribe of Judah, we learn in the closing chapters of Genesis, is a tribe of kings. Judah wisely goes up to his brother Simeon, who is a much smaller and weaker tribe, and says, Come, come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I likewise will go with you, into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. And what we see in the opening of this book is the great victory of Judah. In verse 4, they go up and defeat 10,000 Canaanites and parasites. They pushed King Adonai Bezek. They, they pursued him and they caught him and they humiliated him by cutting off his thumbs and his big toes. Apparently a punishment that Adonai Bezek had imposed himself on 70 other kings. In verse 8, they captured Jerusalem. This is big. This is an important detail. Jerusalem was an ancient city. You first hear of it in Genesis 14 where we meet Melchizedek, the king of Salem, the city of peace. Judah went up to the Lord, right? And the Lord gave them the city. And Jerusalem would eventually become the spiritual epicenter of Israel. In verse 9, now they go down. They went north. And they had, they had success. Now they go down and they accomplish more victories against the Canaanites. But why is Judah so successful? Why do things start well for Judah? Look at verse 4. Judah went up and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into his hand. Look also at verse 11. And the Lord was with 
Judah. That's the source of success of Judah. It is the Lord. Every victory we accomplish in life comes from the hand of the Lord. This is why Christians must be the most humble people, right? Because we recognize that no strength we have is innate to us. Did you notice how Judah discerned the hand of the Lord? They inquire of the Lord. We often fight the wrong battles. We often walk the wrong paths. We often find defeat and frustration because we don't inquire of the Lord. Friends, our decisions in life, from the smallest everyday decision to the greatest, must be bathed in prayer. We're told to pray without ceasing. Why? Because we need the Lord every hour. We also see here that the Lord caused Judah to prosper. Caleb, a Jewish proselyte or a proselyte to Judaism, one of the heroes of the book of Joshua, promises his daughter in marriage to whoever conquers the city of Kiriath Sefer. Othniel, his nephew, and the first judge we'll consider next week, conquers it. And he blesses him with his daughter and with land. And we see here the wisdom of Caleb's daughter. The land that she was given was desert land, but she asks her father for springs of water, and he gives it to them. So the provision of the Lord is abundant. Even the promises that Caleb had been given in the book of Joshua were fulfilled as he received the city of Hebron as Moses had promised him. But all this success is stained, isn't it? All this conquering is stained. It's tainted by failure as well. Israel did not finish the job. The Lord called them to drive out the Canaanites from the land. But they failed. In verse 21, Benjamin fails to drive out the Jebusites from the land. In verse 27, Manasseh fails. In verse 29, Ephraim fails. In verse 30, Zebulun fails. In verse 31, Asher fails. In verse 33, Naphtali fails. In verse 34, Dan even loses a portion of the land. And even the model tribe of Judah fails as they're outgunned by the chariots of iron from the inhabitants of the plain. But Israel's failure is not just because they're weaker in a military sense. Israel also failed because instead of devoting the Canaanites to destruction, they decided to enslave them instead. Look at verse 28. When Israel grew strong, that's often a problem. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. The tribe of Zebulun, 
does the same in verse 30. Joseph does the same in verse 35. They did not obey the commandment of the Lord. They failed because they thought their plan was better than God's plan. So the angel of the Lord says in chapter 2, verse 3, they, these people, the Canaanites, they shall become thorns in your side, and their gods shall be a snare to you. It's interesting here that idolatry is God's judgment on Israel. Uh, very often, very often, God's judgment on us is Him saying, pursue your sin. Yes, go for it and understand the follies of idolatry. Romans 1, God gave the people over to their debased minds. Friends, God's judgment is often, often looks like what the world calls freedom. But at the end, we'll find out that that is the fastest way to wreck our spiritual lives. But why is God so concerned with the presence of the Canaanites among the peoples of Israel? Why? Well, this question leads us to our next point. Let's consider compromise. Let's consider the word compromise. Why does God care so much about the destruction of the Canaanites? I realize that this issue raises an array of ethical questions, but we're not going to fully address these questions today. We may, maybe another day. But I'll say three quick things about God appointing the destruction of entire peoples. First, whatever God ordains is right. More morality flows from His perfect attributes. We may not understand what He's calling us to do, but God is perfectly righteous. Second, no one is innocent. So when God appoints the death of men, never appoints the death of an innocent person. The Canaanites were not innocent. They were wicked. But neither were the Israelites. And so often our sense of justice goes to why did God condemn the Canaanites, but we should be more shocked at the fact that God showed mercy to the Israelites. We all deserve judgments, but God shows mercy to many. Finally, let me say this. I do not want to put myself in the position of a judge over God. And you shouldn't either. He is the one who judges over me, and He is the one who judges over you. So as we go over these stories, let me invite you to believe God and fear God. Trust Him. But why does God care so much about the destruction of the Canaanites? Well, God cares about the holiness of His people. And holiness means separation from the world. A little 
worldly influence can contaminate the whole people. There is a saying among desert people that you never let the camel put his nose inside the tent. Why? Because you like it. And when you least expect, you're sharing the tent with a camel. When talking about sin in the church, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven, a little sin, leavens the whole lump? Complete separation from the Canaanites was necessary for holiness. But we see several times that failure to drive the Canaanites out caused the people of Israel to live side by side with them. So what are the consequences of this? Chapter 2, verse 1. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? Comfort with the Canaanites became, became comfort with their idols. This was God's greatest concern for His people. His first commandment to them was Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. The zealous God who gave themselves to this people through a covenant finds himself betrayed by his people because they make a covenant with another idolatrous people. This is spiritual adultery. And it all began with a little bit of comfort with the Canaanite world. Sometimes we see a small, unwise action getting out of control. I don't know if you've seen these little curly-tailed lizards around here in Brevard County. If you've seen one of them, you're about to see thousands of them. It all begins with one. But... The little curly-tailed lizards attract other lizards who like to eat them. And so, friends, we should welcome the South Florida lizards to Brevard County because they will be here soon enough. Just yesterday, Governor DeSantis announced that the registration for the 2023 Florida Python Challenge is open. $33,000 in prizes. Why? Because some people a while back had the bright idea of releasing a few Burmese pythons in the Everglades. And now they've taken over our ecosystem. And this is how sin works. This is how worldliness takes over the church. Sin is an invasive enemy. Satan doesn't want to destroy the church overnight. No, he plays the long game. He wants to corrupt the church generation by generation until there's no distinction between the church and the world. Satan knew 
that if Israel just lived among the pagans, they would eventually adopt their gods. Look at verse 11. And the people of Israel did was evil in the sight of the Lord. We're going to hear this over and over again in this book. And served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord and the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abounded. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Asherahs. Israel was comfortable with a godless culture. Listen to chapter 3, verse 5. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives. And their own daughters they gave to their sons. And they served their gods. You didn't end up with a little bit of comfort. It ended up with a complete integration of a holy culture with a pagan culture. Friends, this is true of us as well. The church is holy, and yet we live side by side with a pagan culture. If we let a little bit of worldliness enter the church, it will contaminate the whole lump. I remember attending a pastor's meeting back in the day in Miami, and we were discussing the use of secular songs in worship. So, In other words, songs that were written for the good and the pleasure of the world. And many of the pastors there were advocating for this. They said it was a good strategy to attract unbelievers. And I said, but the worship service is for God and not for the unbeliever. So it's not surprising that we see so many churches today struggling with holiness. Not much difference between those who attend the church and those who live in the world. Because for so long we directed our worship to men rather than God. So how do we respond to this? How do we keep the church from the perils of worldliness. Well, here's the first thing we do. We focus on the gospel. We focus on the proclamation of the gospel. Let the gospel saturate everything we do. Because the gospel by nature destroys idolatry. If we preach the glory of the gospel, we cannot preach the glory of men. The gospel is about how my sins are covered by the holiness of Christ. The gospel is about my wickedness and the goodness of Christ. The gospel calls me sinner and calls Christ holy. Friend, do you know the gospel? Apart from the gospel, you can do nothing but pursue 
idols and live in utter worldliness. If you don't know the gospel, you don't know God. Like Israel, we all have sinned against God and pursued the Baals and Asherahs of this world. And because we have sinned against God, the anger of God is kindled against us just as it was kindled against Israel, as we read in verses 14 and 15. But God provides a Savior for His people. Not a Savior that was flawed, as we're going to see the judges were. Not a Savior of this world. No, a sinless Savior. His name is Jesus Christ. He is the very Son of God. One who doesn't just defend us from our enemies outside, but He goes inside and destroys the enemy within our own sin. The message we proclaim is that Jesus is good and we are not. The message we proclaim is the message that Jesus died. But He died as a sinner, which is true of us. We should have died Jesus' death, but instead He dies in our place. And He invites you to believe in Him. And the Bible tells us that all who believe in Jesus, all who receive Him as their Savior, receive the credit of His obedience. So today... I call on you to believe the gospel. This is your only hope. This is the only hope that we all have. But not only do we focus on the proclamation of the gospel, we focus on the application of the gospel. We apply the gospel by practicing at our church regenerate church membership. We're careful to know that all who are considered members of our church have a real, vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ. We make sure that our members have great clarity on the gospel and that they have come to believe it. We guard the table that is set before us. The table that is set before us is only for believers. We openly talk about our sin and our weaknesses, welcoming, loving, reproof. We love our holiness too much to conceal our sin. We foster an environment where we can be weak, vulnerable, so we can find strength in one another and accountability. Finally, we also focus on the expansion of the gospel. It is not a coincidence that sandwiched between verses 1 through 5 of chapter 2 and verses 11 through 15, where God indicts Israel for their corruption, we find a recapitulation of the death of Joshua. Joshua was a godly leader, but most importantly, Joshua called all of the generations of Israel to faithfulness. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Verse 7, we read, read, And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, 
who had seen all the great works that the Lord had done for Israel. But notice the great turnaround in verse 10 of chapter 2. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that He had done for Israel. Friends, this is what happens when we fail to transmit the gospel to the next generation. When we raise our children assuming they know what we've been taught. When we raise our children assume that because they were born in a home where mom or mom and dad are believers, they too are believers, we do them the greatest disfavor possible. This is the pattern we see in Scripture. This is the pattern that we see in our lives. One generation believes the Gospel. Another generation assumes the Gospel. And another generation rejects the Gospel. May this not be true of our children. Are we the generation that assumes the Gospel? Are we the generation that focuses more on education and entertainment and sports? Are we so concerned that our children are happy that we forgot that they must be holy? Do we assume our children will walk with the Lord because we walk with the Lord? Assuming regeneration is an offense to the gospel and a disfavor to our children. Our children need the gospel preached, explained, taught, rehearsed, sung, read, read, written before them. Listen to what Ted Tripp says in his book, Shepherding a Child's Heart. By the way, if you're trying to understand parenting from a biblical perspective, this is a go-to book. The central focus of parenting, okay? P parents, this is, this is what should consume our prayers. This is what should consume our time. This is what should consume our lives. The central focus of parenting is the gospel. You need to direct not simply the behaviors of your children. We, we shouldn't just look to raise our children so they can be well-adjusted citizens, but the attitudes of their hearts. And friends, we can't change the hearts of our children. It is God who changes them. So let us go to God in prayer and trust His gospel. Finally, and, and briefly, let's consider our last word for today, the consequences of Israel's sin. So here in verse 16, we're introduced to the judges. They are the main human characters of this book. We're going to see a total of 12, perhaps 13 judges in this book, depending on the relationship of Deborah and Barak. There are two judges that are in the book of 1 Samuel, that is Eli and Samuel, but this number 12 is symbolic. Symbolic to every tribe of Israel. Judges were leaders raised by God to save His people. Whenever the Lord raised a judge for Israel, He would be with that judge. But Israel struggled to listen to the judge, to the judges. 
And as Israel persisted in their faithlessness and idolatry, they found themselves in a vicious cycle. These cycles are known as the cycle of judges. The cycle would be one of sin, servitude, supplication, and salvation. Israel would sin against God, so God would hand them over to serve other nations. Israel would present their supplication to God, asking for His deliverance, and God would save Israel by appointing a judge to deliver them. And at the end of every cycle, another cycle starts. The cycle was the judgment of God on Israel. Israel was supposed to enjoy peace in the land, but look at chapter 3, verse 1. Now, these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that these generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. But this cycle was also the grace of God on Israel. The grace of God that will not let His people drown in their sins. At a point, God said enough, and He flooded the entire world, only sparing Noah and his family. At a point, God said enough, and He destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, only sparing Lot and some of his family. At a point, God said enough, and destroyed Pharaoh and all his armies, but His people. But to His people, He showed grace. Grace is always God's last word for those who are His. He showed patience, long-suffering, steadfast love. He was a faithful husband to an adulterous people. God pursued Israel throughout Israel's sinful, vicious cycles. But we know these cycles too, don't we? We know our struggles. We heard it earlier in our scripture reading. Romans seven fifteen. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want. But I do the very thing I hate. Friends, the book of Judges is, an, is of incredible relevance for us today. Just as we see God constantly teaching His children to forsake sin, to forsake worldliness, to forsake idolatry. In this book, we see God doing the same in our lives. Do you sense that God simply won't let you go when your heart is rebellious? Do you notice that God simply won't let you live in your sin without consequences? Do you look at your friends and wonder how they're able to get away with their ungodly lifestyle? But God always brings trials and tribulations that will bring you back to Him. Do you feel like other people on the surface can get away with so much, but when you try to pursue your own ways, God brings all kinds of circumstances to your life that drive you back to His feet? 
Friends, this is the grace of God in your life. Even if your life sometimes feels like a cycle, if you keep returning to God, you will keep experiencing His grace. God loves you too much to leave you in your sin. So, turn to Him in repentance and faith today and trust Christ. One way that we seek to live out this principle of returning to Christ day in and day out is by observing the Lord's Supper. So at this moment, I'm going to invite the deacons to come forward as we prepare ourselves to take of the Lord's, to partake of the Lord's table. This table is an invitation for repentant sinners. Here we have two elements, the bread that symbolizes the body of 